Welcome to the podcast at DC, hosted by The Lab at DC. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians. I'm your host, Sam Quinney. Before we dive into today's show, we want to know what you think of the podcast at DC and get your ideas for the topics we should be covering going forward. Whether this is your first time tuning in or you're a seasoned listener, go to tinyurl.com slash thepodcast.dc. There you'll find our listener survey. Your feedback will help us improve our content and production quality, and it'll also allow us to better serve district residents. And now for the episode. Childhood is a very important time in all of our personal and cognitive development. Unfortunately, early exposure to all sorts of traumatic events, like family violence, shootings, or community-wide disasters, is all too common for children. If the trauma goes undiagnosed and untreated, negative mental health conditions like PTSD, anxiety, and depression can follow. On this episode of the podcast, I'll be speaking with Dr. Lisa Jaycox, who founded a childhood trauma program called Cognitive Behavioral Intervention for Trauma in Schools, or CBITS. She is a senior social scientist at the RAND Corporation, where her work has focused on stress, trauma, and evaluation of community interventions. Joining us for this conversation is Michelle Garcia, director of DC's Office of Victim Services and Justice Grants, which serves crime victims and improves the administration of justice for victims and offenders. Lisa, Michelle, welcome to the podcast at DC. Thank you. Happy to Thanks. be here. So, Michelle, let's start out with you. And could you start by just telling us a little bit about what your office does in D.C. government? Sure. So the Office of Victim Services and Justice Grants, our mission is to coordinate, develop, and fund services that increase public safety, enhance the administration of justice, and create continuums of care for victims of crime, youth, and their families in the district. Practically, a large part of our work is providing grant funding to community-based organizations and district agencies that provide services to victims of crime, to justice-involved individuals, so incarcerated and returning citizens, youth and adults, as well as to youth who are at risk for truancy and juvenile delinquency. And I think for our conversation today, if we were going to take the transcript and do a word cloud of it, the term that would probably show up largest would be trauma-informed care, if I had to guess. Michelle, would you tell us a little bit from your perspective what trauma-informed care is and what it's trying to achieve? So... First, I just want to say when I look at the populations our agency touches, that trauma is that common thread. Whether we're talking about victims of crime, justice-involved individuals, or youth, we see high rates of trauma amongst those individuals. And we're talking about individual, family, community, generational, and historical trauma. And so when we think about trauma-informed, it's actually a really interesting question because there's no common agreed-upon definition of what trauma-informed means. And that's one of our challenges. And so what we look at is actually how do the folks that we work with define it for themselves and the populations that they touch and the work that they're doing. I will say some basic elements that we look for is that it is meeting individuals where they're at and identifying their needs and creating plans of care that are driven by people who are experts in their own individual experiences, tapping into their strengths and coming at it from a strengths-based approach. I think resiliency will probably be 
one of the things we talk about as well, and really seeing trauma and resiliency as two sides of that same coin, but also looking at not just the services that are being provided to an individual, but the practices and the policies within an organization to look at is everything we're doing from that trauma-informed lens, which is fundamentally asking, is what we're doing helping or is what we're doing hurting? And Lisa, I want to ask you about how this looks nationally from your perspective, but would you tell us a little bit about the RAND Corporation and your place within it? Sure. Well, the RAND Corporation is a pretty large nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank, and I am a psychologist, so my work has focused mostly on mental health and interventions in community settings. So my work is mostly federally grant-funded, similar to the kind of work I could be doing at a university or somewhere else. But RAND sort of does a whole wide range of work in different topic areas. So, Lisa, at the national level, how many children do we think experience trauma by our best estimates? And what are the main causes or the main descriptors of it as you see it? Well, I go back on the data that is most recent. There was a national incidence and prevalence survey given to youth funded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention called NATSEV. And that study focused on violence exposure, not other kinds of traumas like car accidents or natural disasters or those kinds of things. And that alone showed that the majority of kids are exposed to some kind of traumatic event in the prior year. And that when you're looking at urban areas, it's almost ubiquitous. Most kids are exposed to some kind of traumatic event in the recent past. It's incredible. So anywhere in the U.S., roughly one out of two kids are going to have experienced some sort of trauma or witnessed some sort of trauma in the past year. And it gets much more common even in urban areas. Yeah. And what should we think of as trauma as it's defined either in that study or in some of the other work that you do? Well, that's a good question because it's been getting a little bit more blurry in recent years. I'm a psychologist, so I was trained to really look at like the life-threatening aspect of the event, either witnessed or directly experienced. And that's sort of part of the definition of post-traumatic stress disorder. But more recently, people have been focusing on things like ACEs, adverse childhood experiences that may or may not be life-threatening, things like parent divorce and parental depression and poverty. So there's sort of a continuum, I would say, of stressors at one end of it, things that would definitely count as a trauma and things in the middle, some people experience them as traumatic, and then just common stress. Mm -hmm. And Michelle, how does this national picture square with your knowledge or your work in DC and how does it match up or not with the challenge that we know nationally? So anecdotally, we have a lot of information that there's high rates of trauma in the district, again, both individual, familial, community, generational, and historical. The work that we do and the agencies that our organization funds are the ones that are touching so many of those individuals. So we see it and we see it in a very clear way. We do have some good data when we look at youth. So Lisa mentioned the ACEs data, and in the district, the ACEs data shows that 47% of youth have experienced one or more adverse childhood experiences, and so we can look at that. We don't have comparable data around adults, 
as I said, most of what we have is based on anecdote and experience and also the data that we collect from our organizations that are working in these communities with the individuals who are coming in, both talking about having high levels of trauma, but even if not using that language, displaying some of the types of responses that Lisa spoke about, that fear of being killed or of dying, having those those demonstrations of trauma that are just showing up every day in their lives. So obviously a very prevalent issue. Obviously we don't want anyone to be suffering those sorts of feelings in any way. But what do we know about the issues that are associated with experiencing these types of trauma and other parts of, even if we're just talking about youth, other parts of youth's lives? It can be really varied and it can be really extensive. So again, from the psychological perspective, we kind of look at changes in thoughts, feelings, and behavior. So there's a change in the way you see the world. There can be a change in the way you see the world to feeling like the world's much more dangerous and you're much more at risk, for instance. In terms of behavior, people start avoiding things that might remind them of the traumatic event or of a situation that could be traumatic again or people, places, and things related to the trauma. And then in terms of feelings, there's a lot of anxiety and arousal, like difficulty concentrating, difficulty sleeping, irritability, hypervigilance. So all of those you could see could affect different parts of the life. My focus has been on schools where it really impacts concentration. Sometimes there's avoidance of school or reminders that are related to school social impairments as people pull back and are feeling more anxious and upset. And I think some of the consequences of that that we see in our work and the individuals we touch is, as Lisa mentioned, difficulty concentrating. So think about what that means for a student who cannot concentrate. What does that imply for their academic success? If you have those individuals who are in that state of hypervigilance or hyperarousal and something unexpected happens in that classroom and they have a response to that, are we viewing their response in the lens of their responding to the trauma versus their being disruptive? And we see when we don't look at it through that trauma-informed lens that those students are being labeled as problematic or behavioral, difficult children. They're getting suspended. They're facing discipline. And now we're looking really at pushing students who are responding to trauma and who need to be helped out of schools and contributing to that school-to-prison pipeline. I liked what you said earlier, Michelle, that I've heard that analogy before, which is instead of thinking about like what's wrong with this kid, shifting the lens to what happened to this kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of it as I used to be a middle school teacher in Philadelphia, and I experienced a lot of, from what you're saying, sound much more like responses to potential trauma. And anecdotally, you suspected or you would hear from kids about, you know, really traumatic events that had been happening in their lives or around them. But you didn't really know how much of that is actually happening and manifesting itself in the classroom. But what I find to be really informative and remarkable from what you both are saying is just how prevalent it is and how much Had I known that then, how much more I might have attributed to just the general base rate of these sorts of things happening, particularly in low-income communities, particularly in urban areas. And that seems like an important mindset shift for educators, anyone who works with youth in different ways. And so that, I think, is a really important transition to what do we do to help people who are experiencing this, and particularly youth. And so, Lisa, we have you here to talk about a program that you helped develop, the Cognitive Behavioral Intervention for Trauma in Schools, or CBITS for short. 
and it seeks to diagnose and treat trauma-induced post-traumatic stress disorder or depression in children while they're in school. Could you tell us a little bit more about the program and why you chose to base it out of primary and secondary schools and give us the long history of it? How did you get into it and how did it develop? Well, to start with, I had done earlier work in trying to prevent depression in school children and then adult treatment trauma work with female sexual assault survivors. And I really wanted to bring those two elements together to try and use those same proven treatment elements to help people earlier in their lives. And that's why the idea of middle or high school came about. Because these cognitive behavioral skills really lend themselves well to this kind of group didactic format that can be easily done in the classroom, it's sort of an easy transition to bring them into a group format like that. We don't diagnose PTSD. That's the kind of thing that really doesn't fly in schools. And it's really more of a mental health support program. And so we do screen kids to see if there's elevated symptoms, but we're not trying to make a diagnosis or put anything in a medical chart. It's all sort of done in more of a supportive kind of framework that, again, is more acceptable in schools. Mm -hmm. So our work actually started in L.A. There was funding through an Emergency Immigrant Act through the Los Angeles Unified School District. And we were able to do this work that we had already been planning together, but we kind of quickly had to put it together such that it could work with recent immigrants speaking many different languages. We worked with bilingual, bicultural social workers to kind of iterate and develop a program that was flexible to kind of work across all those different ones and all their different experiences, some of which were in their country of origin or during immigration or in their impoverished neighborhood that you lived in in Los Angeles. So we kind of built this thing that would be useful for any kind of trauma with the idea that the person implementing it would really tailor the examples and the the work around the specific things that the kids are experiencing in that group of children. So one of the reasons that we have you here and we are excited about having you here is that obviously you didn't just do the program, but you evaluated and studied the program. And can you tell us a little bit more before we get into the dynamics of CBITS and the evaluation itself, but who is it serving in LA in this evaluation? What's the total population that you are looking at for the study? We've had a few different studies. We did do a quasi-experimental study with that first cohort, but then we did it in the general school population in Los Angeles. And it's only a little over 100 kids who were in the randomized controlled trial comparing the intervention to a waitlist control. So it's a small study. We've also done small studies like that for different adaptations of CBITS and a field trial in post-Hurricane Katrina. But it hasn't been studied in really large trials or replicated as much as some of the other interventions like trauma-focused CBT is sort of the best proven child treatment. But it's a different model. It's done in clinics and with parents fully engaged. A few things are different there. And what do we know in LA or in New Orleans if there are similarities between the two of the kind of age, any other demographic information, anything about the types of trauma that had been experienced for the students who were engaged in the program? Well, they were, in both cases, middle school students in Los Angeles, mostly Latino students, and in New Orleans, mostly African-American students. 
So that mix, for a while we were wondering if it would work with white kids. It's kind of like the opposite. Some programs are rolled out where they're tested first with the white kids, and then they try and roll it out to the kids of different ethnicities and backgrounds. So in as much as we don't necessarily have a trial for every population, it has been being used and data has been being gathered, just not in experiments. So Wisconsin, for instance, in Madison, they were doing a lot of work for a number of years and gathering their outcomes. The state of Connecticut is rolling out that program and the younger version bounced back and they're measuring outcomes. And so it's comforting to see that even when we're not running a trial that we're seeing good reductions in PTSD and depression, although we don't have the control group in those scenarios. And so walk us through what a child participating in CBITS would experience over the course of the program. What would they do? What would they be talking about? How would they be served by it? Okay. So the first step really is being screened or identified in some way. And that's actually, I think, a pretty big step because sometimes it's the first time that the child kind of puts two and two together about these symptoms being related to that event. It's the same thing with adult survivors of trauma. It's often people are feeling out of control and uncomfortable, but they don't really understand that this all goes together. And sometimes parents don't even know, first of all, that the kids are symptomatic. They often don't know that because these anxious symptoms aren't readily observable. They see them more as defiant or talking back or resisting, but don't understand that they're feeling really scared. And then sometimes they don't even know that they've been exposed to a traumatic event. So especially in urban environments, kids might not tell their mother that they witnessed something because they don't want to get in trouble and they don't want to get their freedom restricted. So the parent might not even know that it happened. So by doing the screening and getting the parent permission, all those pieces kind of get put together for the first time. And then in the groups, there are groups of six to eight kids, and we start gradually and it builds. So in the first session, we're just talking about confidentiality and kind of present the core element of the program, which is that thoughts, feelings, and behavior all go together and are interrelated and that a trauma affects all three. And so we kind of give examples and talk through examples about how fear and anxiety would be a natural response to a traumatic event, and then that makes you want to avoid that kind of feeling again and avoid things that might make you feel that way again, and that the thoughts change to reflect, as I said earlier, that you know the world's more dangerous and I need to be careful. So anyway, we use that as the frame for the rest. And then it kind of builds as we go. We teach common reactions to trauma to kind of normalize everything, relaxation skills so that they can start to calm down the anxiety. We spend a couple sessions looking directly at that kind of thinking that those sudden automatic thoughts that can really get in your way and are unrealistic and teach them ways to challenge them. And then we do start to try and work with them to approach situations that are safe, but that they're avoiding because there are trauma reminders. And then we do focus on the trauma event itself, both in individual and group sessions. And then we do some basic problem solving. Often by that point, they're feeling a little bit better in terms of the trauma, but they have these other problems and they're like, what about that? And, you know, aren't you going to help me with that? And so we do problem solving at the end where it's not about changing your own thinking and feeling. It's about trying to change something in your world to make things go better. Can you say a little bit more about what gets done more directly in a group setting versus an individual setting and what went into that decision in terms of how to lay out CBITS? Well, it's a more efficient approach if it works, right? Because you can serve more kids at once. But it has pros and cons. On the con side, they're not going to get as much individual attention as they would in individual therapy of some kind. 
But on the plus side, it just always blows me away how respectful the kids are of each other. Sometimes people, when they're first getting trained, worry that the kids wouldn't be able to put this kind of trauma together with that kind of trauma, or the kids are going to tease each other. Just doesn't happen. And then the support they get from each other, these kids are thrown together who might not otherwise be peers or be hanging out with each other. And the support they get from each other is really phenomenal. So I think just realizing there's other kids like you with similar experiences is very curative. Mm -hmm. So given that some of these kids are going back into neighborhoods and communities where there's still high likelihood they're going to be exposed to future violent acts or traumatic acts or even just living with high levels of toxic stress, does CBIT do anything to build their coping skills in light of future traumatic events that they'll probably experience? We hope so, yes. I mean, that's part of the goal is that by teaching them ways to notice their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, that next time they'll be a little bit better equipped. And to also kind of roll with the common reactions because they'll expect them and their family will expect them. And it won't be so abrupt a change to have all those symptoms all of a sudden. But the re-exposure to trauma is really important, and it's been a problem that we've worried about all the way along. Some of the schools we work in actually haven't been safe themselves. At one school where we were running the program during the day, they wanted to shift it to after school because of various things, but the kids couldn't even stay after school. They didn't feel safe using the bathroom during the day, and they needed to go home to the bathroom. That's an example of someplace where you feel like you're maybe not even putting a Band-Aid on the problem. So that's what I love about this new movement, which is much newer than the work when we started it, to do this whole trauma-informed system, where you're kind of working at three different levels is the way I think about it, where the sort of universal level, you're trying to reduce bullying, improve school climate, improve teacher training around the trauma lens school discipline policies so that they're trauma-oriented, they're not as toxic for the kids who have already experienced trauma. And then at the second layer comes our type of program, some kind of intervention for kids who are already affected. And then you have really good top-tier services for the kids who need more or are having a more chronic mental health problem. And I think all those together really start to address the recurring traumas. As a behavioral scientist, Lisa, you'd obviously be thinking about people don't just act on what their rational benefit might be for something, but that there's a whole lot of things that might get in the way of them going out and seeking the services that might benefit them the most. And I don't know, how did you think about that And when you thought about choosing to deliver it in schools versus in a clinical setting? Well, I had done the clinical work earlier, and it was very gratifying because the treatments really worked well, you know, people who were ready for it and volunteering for it. But you really can reach a whole different group when you move into the school setting, not just waiting for people to be in so much distress that they finally get the motivation and not only the motivation, but the follow through that's required to get actually into a therapy session. So you can reach all these kids that would never, ever make it to specialty mental health care. And that's what's been the real draw for me. As we are thinking about kind of how do we best serve district residents or residents anywhere, we're working with a finite set of resources, and there's a number of other priority areas that people care about. And so it really matters that, you know, how we're choosing to approach this population, it's not a question of do we try and serve people who have experienced trauma or having challenges academically or in the community, but how do we do it in the best way possible? And so, Lisa, I'd love to hear how you tried to figure out how well CBITS works and what the approach was for you. 
Well, again, we had this close partnership with Los Angeles Unified School District, not just the leadership, but the actual clinicians who were doing the work. So when we first ran the program, we were meeting with them every week. We were showing them the next session. They were giving us feedback. We were tweaking it. They were trying it. We were tweaking it more. So it was from the get-go, it was very feasible and acceptable to the people who are going to be using it. That was the approach we used. I think when we were doing it in 1998, it didn't really have a name, but lately it's called things like community participatory research and other things where we were doing a lot of those elements, but without that particular label at the time. And how did you evaluate the program in the two studies that you mentioned in LA and New Orleans? So in both cases, we got the buy-in from the schools. And then Marlene Wong, who was the director of mental health services in Los Angeles Unified School District, was just very forward-thinking for a administrator, particularly at that time. And she did not want to roll anything out without evaluating it. So we didn't have to convince her. That always makes it a little easier. (laughs) Even more than that, when we were broaching the topic of randomization being the best way to allocate the kids to either get the intervention or wait, she was all for it and said that she actually thought it was more fair than the way services are usually allocated, where it's like the squeaky wheel gets to get in first mm-hmm. or the principal's favorites get to go in first or somebody picks their, you know, she thought it was much more equitable to mm-hmm. actually randomize, even though it's a little bit unfamiliar for some families to be put in that situation. We had that kind of support from the get-go, and I think more and more people are understanding that that is the best way to try and see it. But as I mentioned earlier, we've never been able to look at our long-term outcomes because we've been doing these smaller studies in close partnership with schools. They don't want to wait to deliver services, and so we've always served everyone identified within the same school year. And so that's a downside to the research. And can you say in a little bit more detail, I think what I would refer to the design of this as a step and wedge design or a sequenced rollout. How did you do that in LA? What was the dynamics for it? Well, as I said, we got the buy-in for the randomization. And so then we just randomly allocated half the kids to get the intervention immediately and then half to wait. So everyone got an assessment and screening and determined to be eligible. Then we randomized half the kids got the intervention then. We reassessed everyone around three months. Then the second half got their intervention time. And then we reassessed everyone at six months. So we were able to sort of see the way that symptoms changed when the group got the intervention that was allocated to them. And tell me a little bit more about the assessments and the outcomes that you were measuring and also hoping that might be affected by CBITS. So our primary outcome is post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms because that's what the whole program is sort of geared towards. But we also have looked at depressive symptoms. They're highly correlated with the PTSD symptoms, but slightly different as well. And then we look at the things that matter to teachers and parents around behavior and compliance and the things that are a little bit more observable. Usually, we are always able to see good changes in PTSD symptoms and depressive symptoms. And then it's varied a little bit in terms of the behavior and depending on who reported it and which study. We usually see some aspects of improvement, but not like uniform across the board. Mm -hmm. Can you give a little bit more context for the, I know there's multiple studies involved, but for rolling this out in New Orleans as well. So we understand both studies in both sites. Sure. So in New Orleans, we were wanting to help respond to Hurricane Katrina in 2005, and we were able to cobble together some federal funding through administrative supplements to existing grants and worked really closely with a community mental health program called the Mercy Family Center. 
I don't know if you remember in New Orleans, pretty much all the schools were closed for 2005, 2006, almost all of them. They started to reopen partway through the year, but it was the parochial schools that reopened first and took in all kinds of students, not just their normal student population. And then gradually schools started to open. So we worked in parochial schools that had opened and were amenable to trying to address the trauma exposure. So there we were working closely with the developers of trauma-focused CBT, Judy Cohen and Tony Manorino, and we together came up with a plan to try and look at CBITs versus trauma-focused CBT, not to try and test them against each other, but rather to try and see who did better and which, so that it would inform like the next big disaster, how you might allocate services across different kinds of kids. Would you want to reserve TFCBT for a certain kind of kid with really high-level symptoms, for instance, or how might you allocate? Because you have limited resources and a lot of affected kids, so how might you do that? So that was the plan. We randomized kids to either get CBITs in school or TFCBT in the clinic, but we weren't able to really look at the question we had wanted to look at because we had a lot of trouble getting the TFCBT to happen for various reasons. People just didn't take up that service as much, even though we were offering transportation and babysitting and car fare and whatever we could kind of imagine. Seems like anything you could think of that a service provider or a government could do to help. It seems like you tried. Yes, exactly. We bent over backwards. So really the lesson there was that kids who got TFCBT improved as you would know they would and kids who got CBITs also improved. So really it became a real demonstration of the differing access and the value of delivering something on site in the schools because they can benefit and you reach all the students you intend to reach. And Michelle, can you say a little bit about how services are, at least right now, delivered in the district? And when we think about whether it's something that people have to go to and there might be all of these potential barriers associated versus things that kind of come to them, what's the status quo right now in your view? So I think it depends where you look in the district and who the service providers are. So I can speak to the organizations that we touch and that we fund. And I will say many of the models are still very westernized approaches of here is our office. If you need our services, you can come to us. There's also an empowerment element of that that we need to acknowledge about empowering people to be able to get the help that they need. But as Lisa mentioned, those are the folks who have identified that they have a need for this assistance, that they're proactively reaching out to help. They have the ability to get to those places on time every week and in many cases have the resources. And in some cases, it's really having the ability to afford those services. The services that we offer through our office and that we fund, one of the barriers we try to decrease is that cost element and that all services have to be offered free of charge. And also working with more and more practitioners who are going to where people are at to provide those services. So yes, They may have an office that's based in Northwest, but they also have a satellite in Southeast. Some are doing home-based therapy and services, so going to people in their homes because that's where they feel safe and that's where they feel comfortable and where they will actually benefit from these services and that they can not only touch that individual but their families as well who often are also in desperate need of these types of supports and services. And that we're looking to really expand our ability to meet people in their neighborhoods and 
invest in creating spaces where we're providing place-based trauma services. So really identifying neighborhoods that have high rates of trauma, high rates of violence, where there are all these barriers to accessing services and where there's often resistance to accessing mental health services for a variety of reasons and creating community centers, engaging with community leaders to identify their needs, to shape what those services like, to build relationships within the community so that they're really services led by the community, in the community, by the community, and for the community. So really embedded in there and kind of co-created in a way that lowers as many barriers as possible. Absolutely. Like and, and recognizing that community members are the experts in their own experience mm-hmm. and often are the ones who can drive what they need in order to not only survive, but to thrive. And so using their expertise to really shape what these programs are going to look like. And Lisa, it makes me wonder, what do you know, if anything, from the New Orleans experience about what either the participants said or anecdotally, what was keeping people from getting care in a more clinical setting outside of the school? Like, what were the barriers, even if you tried to address everything that you said, transportation, daycare, those sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a combination of all those things. The only factor that we had in the research study that was related to whether or not they got there was distance to the clinic, their school location to the clinic, but they were all relatively close. It's a good question. You know, I think the other distinction here between clinic-based treatment and the kind of screening that we did in the schools to identify who was going to be allocated to these two different treatments is that even though trauma was very much on the radar with everyone in New Orleans in 2006, they still hadn't put up their hand and said, we want treatment. Mm -hmm. Instead, all they did was sign a form saying, yes, you can screen my kid. And yes, I agree to participate. And so I think there's a big difference there. When you're doing work where people aren't treatment seekers, Mm -hmm. and rather they're detected and you're finding them and you're trying to provide support services, they really may not be ready to do that kind of clinic-based care. And it it points out the fact that it's the minority of people in the U.S. with a mental health problem who get any kind of mental health Mm -hmm. care. So it's sort of the rare bird who ends up going through all those steps and showing up in a psychotherapy office, again, sort of making the argument that... Anything that we can do that's more in line with mental health supports that is embedded and available, even for those who aren't interested or ready or motivated to get treatment, could be helpful. Well, let's talk about the results in a little bit more detail. So what did you find when you were evaluating CBITS versus the care in a clinical setting about what were the outcomes for students and how did they differ at all by site or what do we know about any differences between the two? So kids in both arms of the study improved if they got services. So we were able to see decreases in PTSD symptoms and depressive symptoms in both the people who began TFCBT and the people who were in the CBITS groups. And there weren't significant differences between the two, but our numbers were pretty poor for detecting any kind of differences there. But again, we don't do the same kind of clinical study that you might be used to, like in a medical setting, because we didn't diagnose PTSD and we're not looking for remission or things like that. We're really looking for just improvement on a symptom measure. And we do rely on self-report in these studies because you can't really measure PTSD and depressive symptoms any other way. Mm-hmm. It's really a subjective experience. It's not visible to others. Certain pieces of it might be visible, but only the person knows how fearful they feel when they're reminded of a trauma, for instance. Nobody else can feel the change in their heart rate or wanting to turn around and check the door. So that reliance on self-report is kind of two-edged in that in a more rigorous 
clinical study, they would want to have a radar, you know, diagnosis and all of that. And that's really not what we're doing here. We're asking the kids how they feel at the beginning and the end. In LA, where you had the staggered rollout design, did you find similar results when you actually had a cleaner comparison group? Yeah, we did. And how large should we think of these effects being? They're medium to large effects, depending on the measure, but we're only measuring them on a short term, so Mm -hmm. we don't know really how long they One semester apart, right? Is that what we should think about? Yeah. And what about their performance in school? We started out talking about a little bit of how the inability to concentrate might affect school. Did you look at outcomes in school? So we were able to look at outcomes in school in the study in Los Angeles. We had collected data on their attendance and grades. They don't line up well with the experiment that we did because grades are collected on the quarter and semester. And attendance data doesn't turn out to be very good because it's not very variable in the elementary, middle school years. In high school, it's much more spotty whether they come to school or not. We were working with fifth, sixth, seventh graders. They usually are at school. So we did see, however, that the kids who got the treatment earlier showed improved grades in a couple of their classes compared to the kids who got the treatment later in the school year. So that was definitely confidence building in terms of the impact on academic outcomes. I think if you really wanted to do the study right and had a lot of resources to do it, what you might do is not relying on the school records per se, but doing like a performance-based aptitude tests with the kids at the different stages to line up with the experimental assessments. If only our data collection always conformed with what would be the best way to evaluate it. Absolutely. Michelle, so you're a leader in a lot of this work in the district. How would you view the ideal system of trauma-informed care in the district? What would you love to see either in our schools or in the community generally? I think there's a few things that I would like to see. One is that we have good data collection around trauma that really drives our efforts and our policies and our practices so that we could see the levels of trauma in the district amongst youth and adults. Two, I would love to see universal screening. So when we start with youth, that every year there would be routine universal screening K through 12 every student. And then that we would have the resources to respond to those needs that we would identify so that we would have individuals at all levels, anyone who works with people has some basic knowledge of what trauma is and trauma-informed response. And then depending on levels of interaction that people have, scaling up that training as appropriate, but from the teacher who can recognize that the student is acting out because possibly this is a trauma reaction to the security security guard in any government building that you walk into that knows that this person is hypervigilant and when you touch them, that response was not about them being a potential threat, but it's a trauma reaction. So really looking at training everybody around the basics in trauma and trauma-informed response and then having those more intensive services for people who have those greater needs, youth, adults, and really building this into our language and organizationally also looking at our policies, our practices, so that we are becoming all of us trauma-informed agencies and organizations so that everything we do through this lens is around repairing harm rather than creating additional harm. 
And would something like CBITs or an additional intervention fit into that spectrum and how would it fit in for you, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think CBITs is, you know, one model. Lisa talked about also cognitive behavioral therapy. I think we can look at family functional therapy. There's a lot of different models that treat trauma. And I think it's looking at what is the right fit for the right individual in the right space. And then also making sure that when we talk about responses, that we're bringing responses to people where they're at. We're not expecting them to come to us. And so one of the things that's great about CBITS is it's taking it into the school where kids already are. It's not requiring a student or their family to have to get on the metro to go from one quadrant of the city to another. It's bringing those resources to people where they need them. So obviously when you have something that seems to be working and seems to be beneficial to kids and has been tested in a rigorous way and in multiple locations, has CBITS been scaled up or is it being done elsewhere beyond the two sites that you looked at? Yeah, it's being used very broadly. It's actually been a real tension for us and a big consideration for us over the years. You know, we would have liked to do five more studies and get a lot of federal funding to do big studies. I'm a researcher primarily, but First of all, federal funders don't keep funding the same thing over and over to do like your larger and larger study. That kind of funding has kind of dried up in recent years to do like replications and such. They wanted to fund the new thing rather than the replication. And second of all, people wanted to use it even before there was evidence. So we had this tension as to whether or not to give access to it versus hold on to it longer and test it more. And we took a pretty middle ground on that. We don't try to oversell the findings, for instance, with the support for students exposed to violence, which is an adaptation. We only have one small pilot study, and I always tell people that when they're interested in it, but people sometimes still want to use it. So we put all of our materials really out in the public. We make them available. We've been providing more and more infrastructure, but we're a little different than some of the other treatment developers in that nobody's making money on it. It's all free and in the public domain. It's been hard because nobody actually owns a business that's promoting it. That would be easier, but we have been very lucky to have federal funding through SAMHSA, through the National Child Traumatic Stress Network that gives us an infrastructure so that we can keep things rolling. So right now, you know, there's a lot of use of CBITs and then a younger adaptation called Bounce Back for kindergarten through fifth grade. Those are being used really widely in Connecticut, Pennsylvania. We're doing eight trainings this summer in Pennsylvania, Los Angeles, Chicago, Madison, Wisconsin, places you wouldn't expect, like Madison, Wisconsin, which I just don't think of as being high crime, but I've also never been right, there. university <laughs> town. and <laughs> Anyway, you, you get the idea. And even like a lot going on in the Midwest, Kentucky, Tennessee. And then there's parts of the country that really don't have the mental health clinicians. So like in North Carolina, there is a lot of interest right now in support for students exposed to trauma because of the hurricanes that rolled through there. And they have very rural areas with very few mental health resources. And so they're working on using that program. And so for somebody nationally, Lisa, I'll turn to you and locally in D.C., Michelle, who wants to either know about trauma-informed care or how to recognize trauma and find resources that might be able to assist them in serving people, where should they look? Where would you recommend they go? So we're funded as a center that is supposed to do exactly that, provide technical assistance nationally for anyone who wants to do this kind of work in schools, so trauma in schools. And we have a few different websites. The general one is traumaawareschools.org. And then we have three websites for three specific interventions that have training and implementation materials and such. 
So that's one place to come. We get queries every day from people who want resources and the resources they want really vary. There's a really good NCTSN toolkit for educators, for instance. And so sometimes that's enough. They get that kind of resource packet. Other times they want training. Sometimes they find what they need on the website and sometimes they need more. And Michelle, what about someone here in D.C.? What should we Google here if we're trying to learn more about this or learn how we can do better trauma-informed care? So I'll mention a couple things. One, I think the Department of Behavioral Health actually has a training institute, and they do numerous trainings around trauma and trauma-informed care, and so that's a resource. There's a number of private practitioners in the district who host trainings, and we actually put those resources out via our website as well as to all of our grantees so that they have access to that information so they can enhance their capacity. I'll plug, we're actually working on developing a trauma training institute that we'll be hosting in September, two-day training focusing on the neurobiology of trauma, trauma-informed response, trauma in the different populations that we touch, as well as vicarious trauma and self-care. So that'll be a resource. And then just in terms of individuals who are in need of services, I do also want to mention the DC Victim Hotline. So for those who are experiencing trauma as a result of either being a victim or witnessing crime, the district has large numbers of providers. And the way to navigate that system is through the DC Victim Hotline. Line, which is one eight four 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 help dc which is available 24-7 by phone or text, as well as by chat at dcvictim.org. And Michelle, do you want to say, we've talked a little bit about it in different questions, but what's on the horizon for this in D.C., and what are you excited about in the future? Yeah, so I think the district is making some critical investments in really enhancing our ability to respond to trauma and also to get youth and students and their families the types of resources that they need. So there's three things that I'll mention, investments that the mayor has made for FY20. First is a $1.6 million investment for connected schools, which is really to establish schools as neighborhood hubs that provide wraparound services for students and their families, as well as community members, even if they don't have students at that school. $4.7 million investment for Families First, which will establish 10 family success centers in 10 neighborhoods east of the river that are really geared towards empowering families, providing integrated services with a goal of ensuring families are safe, healthy, and able to thrive. And then I started touching on this earlier, $1.6 million for an investment that will be coordinating around creating place-based trauma and community engagement sites in three neighborhoods in Ward 7 and 8 to, again, really bring services to the community at that neighborhood level. And the last thing I'll mention is the work we're doing this year to establish a pro bono trauma-specific mental health bank to really increase the cadre of clinicians we have in the district who can provide those trauma-specific mental health services at no cost to somebody. That's great. That's great. So, Michelle and Lisa, thank you so much for being on the podcast at DC, and thank you so much for this important work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. Our producer is Nellie Moore, and our podcast intern is Tim Madden. If you liked what you heard, visit our website at thelab.dc.gov, where you can sign up for our mailing list. You should also follow us on Twitter at thelab underscore DC. However you choose to connect with us, you can find more information on our work, 
and stay updated on what we're doing. For more episodes of the podcast at DC, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sam Quinney.